Hey everybody and welcome back to the second episode of the Knockabout Travel Podcast. Today we're traveling to the Pacific Northwest to explore the lives of an endangered family of orcas that makes its seasonal home in the waters of the Salish Sea. The name sounds exotic and mystical, but uh, really it's just the inland waters around Seattle and Vancouver Island. The orcas, uh, they're known as the southern resident killer whales, have had a tough time in recent years. Some of them are near starvation due to lack of food, which has diminished their ability to reproduce. The numbers have dropped from around 98 whales in the mid-1990s to only 74 today. Now, my guest today is Lynn Barry. She's a marine biologist and the branch chief for the Protected Resources Division of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, or NOAA for short. Lynn goes into detail about the orca's behavior. <laughs> That's my New England accent. The orca's behavior, family structure, what's endangering their existence, and what can be done about it. This episode was actually recorded close to two years ago for another podcast that I was doing, uh, Intrepid Northeast, which covered outdoor lifestyle. But uh, that endeavor was canceled shortly after recording, so I was never able to release the interview. Uh, because the interview pertains to a specific location, though, I thought it appropriate to release it here. The information is still accurate and relevant, and um, I hope you enjoy the episode. So without further, uh, without further talk, let's introduce Lynn Barry. Okay, so Lynn, welcome to Intrepid Northeast Radio, and um, you're here today to talk about the southern resident killer whales and the predicament that they're facing. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about, about yourself and how you got started with this type of project? Sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm happy to help increase awareness about our endangered southern resident killer whales. I lead up NOAA's recovery program for this endangered population of southern residents. Uh, I've been working out here in the Seattle area in the northwest on southern residents for over 15 years. And even before that, I, I came out to help with a killer whale rescue of Springer from the northern resident community, uh, also known as A73. So that was my introduction to killer whales in the Pacific Northwest area and the Salish Sea. And uh, I've been working on southern residents through the Endangered Species Act listing, developing recovery plans, identifying critical habitat, uh, putting protective regulations in place as part of our program. Okay. And can you tell everybody what what it means uh, when you say southern residents and northern residents, we're talking about the orcas. Yes, yeah, so there are uh, orcas or killer whales in every ocean. And researchers have been studying these whales and have found that there are different populations that don't interbreed with each other, uh, have different behaviors, they eat different things. So here in the Salish Sea area in the Pacific Northwest, we have three types of killer whales. We've got uh, transients, which are marine mammal eaters, uh, offshores uh, that we think eat sharks and other fish, and then residents. So residents are fish-eating uh, killer whales, and we have multiple populations. So the southern residents spend summer in uh, and around the San Juan Islands and range off the coast of the U.S. from about Monterey, California, up right into southeast Alaska. And then to the north, we have northern residents who spend most of their time in British Columbia waters. And we also have uh, Alaska resident populations. Okay, great. Uh, now, as far as the southern residents go, uh, this um, seems to, within the last year or so, have hit um, some of the mainstream media uh, in terms of uh, what this uh, family of whales is going through. And can you just explain that uh, to people? 
Sure. Well, we actually listed them as endangered um, back in 2005. So we've known that there's been a problem for these whales for many years. They had an almost 20% population decline, going from you know almost 100 whales down to almost 80 uh, in the late 90s. And um, we were petitioned to list this unique population that doesn't you know interbreed with other killer whales under the endangered species list. And so we uh, have identified the main threats, which are you know do these whales have enough of the salmon and Chinook salmon in particular to eat? They're um, kind of top predators and live a long time, so they accumulate harmful contaminants. And they're also um, you know, acoustic animals and the subject of a kind of busy whale watch industry and live in busy waters. So they can be affected by sound and, and vessel activities. Okay. And and so the Chinook salmon you had mentioned, um, and that, that is, for the most part, from what I understand, their only, only food source? It's, it's the majority of their food source, like almost 80, 90% of their diet, particularly in summer months when they're in the Salish Sea. They do diversify at different times of years in different places. Um, in Puget Sound, they can be there in the winter when there aren't many Chinook around, and they might eat some more chum salmon. And then off the coast, um, they have branched out, and we've seen them eat more um, a little bit of coho, steelhead, and also some non-salmonids, things like... Um, halibut and rock uh rockfish or uh you know bottom fish okay and 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 so i think you know as we know the the chinook salmon are, are on decline and is there any particular reason why the chinook salmon are not returning to you know to the sailor sea or to the rivers that they they spawn in or however that works oh Salmon uh, situation is very complicated, uh, and it really depends on which run you're talking about. There are salmon runs, you know, all up and down the coast, and different runs are subject to different um, different challenges. Whether it's a, a habitat issue, because we have you know human development and and um, uh, or hydropower issues where we've put dams on rivers. Uh, we also have hatchery programs to produce fish. And those can also interfere with the natural and wild spawning salmon. And then we also harvest these salmon. So there's a whole host of things. And added to that is uh, climate changing, ocean conditions, things like that. So uh, kind of on the same time scale that we've seen declines in uh, southern resident killer whales, uh, some of these runs of salmon have also declined. And we've listed certain runs of salmon and, and other species under the endangered species list as threatened or endangered. And so there is an ongoing kind of conservation and recovery program. So these are things that have kind of evolved together over many, many years. And it, you did ask about kind of in the last year what's brought this to, the, to our attention. And that's really focused on um, some specific things that happened this summer. Mm -hmm. We had a mother, J35, in the southern resident population, and she uh, had a calf which died immediately, and she proceeded to carry that dead calf with her for, uh, I think, almost three weeks. And I think that really demonstrates these close so social bonds that these whales have. They live in these family groups and are very connected to each other. Um, we also had J50, who is a, a juvenile female in the population, who we were seeing some declining body condition. And this could be related to not getting enough to eat and that link to um, the abundance of salmon out in their habitat. 
Um, so it could also be related to other health health issues as well. But our recovery program has really uh, tried to coordinate and connect with all the efforts to address the threats for the salmon populations that the whales depend on. And that's really ramped up, I'd say, in the last year with this heightened awareness about these individual whales. We also have a new governor's task force here in Washington state that's been focused on orca recovery and that really strong connection to salmon recovery. So that's brought some new attention to the program as well. And and with this new attention, I mean, has there been, um, from what I understand, the governor is, is paying attention, but has there been any anything at a federal level, uh, any changes in, in political behavior, so to speak, that, uh, you know, maybe they're getting some pressure from their constituents and, and making some positive change, or is is that, uh, you know, just wishful thinking at the moment? Well, there are some state bills that have been proposed and some uh, initiatives and some budget that's been requested through the state. So at the federal level, we've been working very closely. Uh, I sat on the task force myself, so we've been providing the history of work that NOAA has done at the federal level both on the research into how these threats affect the whales and how whales and salmon interact, um, as well, you know, we work with a lot of partners on the research front as well. So that's something that has continued every year. We're making new advances and learning more about the whales and how to address the threats. Um, also at the federal level, we're working on things like um, modifying the critical habitat that we've designated to include coastal waters. Um, when the whales were first listed and we first did critical habitat, we just didn't know as much about um, how the whales were using their coastal habitat. So NOAA's had a very uh, comprehensive program to find out more about where the whales are spending their time, how they're using that habitat, what salmon they're eating uh, up and down the coast. And that's been through satellite tagging, through acoustic recording of the whales. Also, they've, we've gotten out uh, on the water with the whales in the winter and spring to get samples of what they're eating and get samples of their, their feces, can learn a lot mm -hmm. from whale poop. Sure. Um, and then also we get sightings from different people who, who might see the whales or photograph the whales that we can identify to southern residents. So that's been a kind of a major effort over the last few years, and now we're pulling all that information together to, to look at new critical habitat. Okay. And, you know, I know they're having uh, really uh, bad issues with, with, you know, food sourcing, uh, food sources, but has there been any uh, indication like that they've adapted their food sources at all, or are they pretty much just, uh, you know, exclusive to the salmon? Has, has there been any, I guess, indication that they might be, you know, targeting marine mammals or whales or, or you know, like, like some of the transients might no, they don't seem to be that flexible in their diet. Uh, right now, um, we're still learning you know, more and more about what they're eating when, but it's all been fish. I believe there's some older reports of stomach contents from stranded animals that also included some kind of squid beaks and some indicators there. But there's, there's no signs that they're able to switch to something like marine mammals. Okay. There have been some interactions between southern residents and I think, you know, harbor porpoise. Um, where they did interact with it and I even may have killed one or, you know, taken it down and drowned it, but they didn't eat it. Okay. So, uh, you know, we know there are some physical differences between the fish-eating residents and the mammal-eating transients, just 
the jaw structure, uh, someone was, was studying that years ago. They also are different um, in their acoustics and how they hunt. So it might just be that they have very strong um, foraging behaviors that they learn okay. living in these family groups so and they aren't could be, able to switch. They could be physically suited for targeting salmon and, and maybe not anything else? Yes, uh, as far as the the echolocation that Mm -hmm. they use, this biosonar to find the fish in their habitat and catch that fish, um, you know, maybe hard to to switch gears easily to hunt marine mammals. The transients are a little more kind of stealth hunters and also kind of work cooperatively. Okay. So that makes sense. I mean, like, I never really thought of it Mm -hmm. like that. Um, You know, I would just think that if I were starving, I would try to find something else. But I guess maybe... Yeah, maybe that just isn't possible. Well, and that may be why we see them switch to other types of salmon. And Chinook are really some of the biggest and highest caloric content salmon out there. So they may already be doing a little switching if there aren't sufficient um, Chinook out there to really sustain them where they would switch to something like a chum or a coho or steelhead or even a, you know, a bottom fish like a halibut that might not have as much energy and might require more energy to catch. So it's just part of it's a, an energy balance. Can you tell us a little bit about the social structure of the orcapods as well in terms of like their, their family structure, intelligence, and, and social interactions with each other? Yeah, southern residents are so interesting in their social structure. Um, it's really unique in resident killer whales that they live in these family groups. So the whole southern resident population uh, it, it consists of three pods. So we have J-pod, K-pod, and L-pod. And these are related whales. And then going down from the pod, we have matrilines. So mom's in charge. She's kind of the leader of this, these family groups. And the sons and daughters stay with their mothers their entire lives. That's really a unique thing for for mammals to do. Mm-hmm. And these whales um, share food with each other. They have unique calls that they make and communicate with each other. Uh, the southern residents as a whole have some unique behaviors that they do, and you know only southern residents do. They do this greeting ceremony that uh, researchers have documented where, you know, sometimes in the spring months when the whales are coming back together and are all in the same place at the same time, after, you know, exploring different parts of their habitat, they'll line up and and do this really uh, interesting greeting ceremony. So they're, you know, culturally different, socially different. Um, Northern residents are unique in that they use these rubbing beaches Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure of you know what the purpose of that is, but there are these shallow areas with some smooth stones, and those northern residents will kind of go along the bottom and 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 rub on those stones. So the social structure is really interesting, um, especially that that family group that shares food and you know swims very very tightly together. Uh, when calves are born, they stay very close with mom, so it's easy for us to tell which female has had a new calf, and then those calves just stay in that family group their whole lives. Another interesting thing is that females will uh, live well past their reproductive years, and exactly what role those those post-reproductive females play as far as guiding groups or leading their family groups to, you know, where they remember abundant salmon populations. Uh, 
there's still a lot for us to, to learn about that aspect of their, their social structure and culture, so, but really interesting animals. Yeah. So what is the lifespan of, you know, of a, well, an orca in general, let's say? Yeah. So we think females can live you know, into their 80s, maybe 90s, um, really living a long time, whereas right. their reproductive span is more, you know, in their early teen years to about 40. Uh, so they, they really can live a long time. It's almost like males, human, human lifespan yes. and human cycles. And yeah, it's crazy. Yes. Very similar to, to humans and males similar as well in that they, you know, they become more mature and, um, reproductively active in those kind of teenage years, um, and throughout their whole lives. And they live more to be, you know, 50 or 60 maximum lifespan. So different lifespans. Um, different roles in the community, and 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 one of the aspects of that long lifespan uh, for females, in particular, might be related to contaminants. Uh, the females are able to offload some of the contaminants that they get um, because the the milk they're feeding their young is really fatty rich, okay. where some of those contaminants can kind of bind. And the males don't have that opportunity. So they're just accumulating up the food chain at the top of the food chain, um, harmful contaminants through their their whole lives. And okay. that may be one of the factors in the different lifespans. Hmm. Interesting. And you had just mentioned about the, the northern residents um, and some of the things that they do. But are they facing the same predicament that the southern residents are facing in terms of pretty much being near extinction no, northern residents have uh, done really well in the last few years. Um, for many years, uh, the populations of the northern residents and the southern residents were sort of tracking along the same lines. They both exhibited a population decline in the, the kind of late 90s. Um, but following that, the northern residents have just continued to grow, whereas the southern residents have been, you know, very stagnant in their population growth, kind of hovering around 80 whales for, for a long time, and now down to, you know, 74 or 75, if you count, you know, the newest calf. Okay. And we've been looking at differences between these populations. They do have different contaminant levels. Um, they do, you know inhabit slightly different parts of the ecosystem with the southern residents spending, I'd say, more time around some really urban areas. And northern residents, some of their habitat is, is a little more pristine, uh, maybe less boats focused on the northern residents uh, in their habitat. But they are eating a lot of the same runs of Chinook salmon. Um, but it may be that some of the salmon, as they're migrating uh, south along the coast, the northern residents get kind of first crack at some of those salmon as they're coming through their habitat before they get to where the southern residents are going into Puget Sound rivers, into you know, Washington, Oregon, California coastal rivers. Okay. So comparing those populations is something we're, we're doing to look at their, their health and their body condition, their reproduction, what they're eating, um, okay. and what impacts are affecting them to, to help us better understand what's different for the southern residents and they must have to eat a ton of salmon uh to maintain that body weight i would imagine um do you know yeah, do, you, we, do you have an idea how much they have to eat per day or oh it's 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 not an easy question to answer because not all uh fish are equal <laughs> right so we yeah. we do have 
some physiologists that work uh, with our research team who've looked at kind of how many calories do they need, and then it just depends on kind of what size and how many salmon could fill that. So we do have some back of the envelope um, guesses, but it's it's really highly dependent on um, you know not just a generic salmon out there, but is it a a Puget Sound Chinook salmon that's uh, four years old, or is it a Fraser River salmon that's you know three years old or four years old? Um, complicated, but they do require a lot of energy, especially those those moms that are uh, having babies and and lactating. And some of those juveniles, when they're you know, having growth spurts, things like that. Sure. Okay. And overall, uh, Lynn, if you could tell me, like, what's the prognosis for uh, the southern residents uh, at this point? Is it is it is there is there hope for them as a as a whole as a whole group, or uh, you know, is it is it looking pretty bleak? I'm always hopeful that people will come together and help support recovery of Southern residents because people really care about these animals. I think that connection of living in family groups like we do or having similar um, lifespans and social structures. I think people can really identify. Yeah, I think people do really relate to them. So I'm hoping that this sort of increased attention that we have, momentum, both here in Washington State and along the U.S. West Coast, but also in Canada. These are transboundary whales that don't recognize the border, and, and Canada has really stepped up to increase some of their recovery efforts as well. So that gives me hope. And although we have had a couple very poor years with no calves born that have survived with this population, um, we do know that the, some of the females are pregnant um, using a an unmanned drone to take aerial photos. Uh, our science team is able to see pregnancy. It's a great transboundary collaboration with NOAA and the Vancouver Aquarium and a, another research group called SR3. And so that gives us hope that there's pregnant females in each of the pods. We have seen a new calf this winter, an L pod. And that that's, makes me hopeful that we can work on salmon recovery, work on vessel impacts, and address some of the you know contaminant issues, and really provide a, a better habitat for these whales to thrive in. Okay, uh, can you just define vessel impact? Because uh, I don't I don't know if that we covered that too much. Yeah, so the three main threats. So, you know, are there enough of that Chinook salmon out there? Um, they're acoustic animals that use echolocation to find food, so vessels and sound can impact their ability to forage successfully. And then if they're not getting enough to eat, um, the contaminants that can be stored in the blubber um, might mobilize more frequently and cause immune function or health problems. So really all those threats are, are linked together. And there's a, a growing body of research on how vessels may be impacting the whales as far as uh, interfering with their echolocation or masking that sound that they, they use to find food. Also changing their behavior, looking at when boats are nearby, are the whales spending more time traveling or foraging, and how does that affect their, their energy balance. Uh, we've also got studies um, that when boats are close by, the whales are doing some of these more energetically expensive behaviors, things like breeches and tail slaps. And they also have are to they, make louder calls. Are they calls. showing off? Or? 
Well, uh, it might be a warning or uh, some signal that they're trying to keep their group cohesion. Okay. We don't really know what, what how those behaviors function, but we do see more of them when boats are nearby. Okay. Uh, just something that affects, yeah, their energy intake and use. And then also they, they do ha have to call louder to kind of be heard over the sound of the boats so they can successfully communicate with each other and coordinate their activities. And that has a, a small um, energetic expense as well. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so what can we do? Um, you know, even though this radio show is called Intrepid Northeast, actually uh, most of the listeners are, are from uh, the West Coast. So, um yeah, so it's right in your neighborhood. Everybody's listening yeah. out there. So, uh, what can people do to to uh, help the cause, so to speak? There's so many things people can do every day in their homes, uh, how they commute, that really can improve uh, the overall environment for both the salmon prey of the whales and the whales themselves. So, simple things like what products you use on your lawn, or how you care for your car, or how often you're commuting um, or using organic products, recycling, all of those um, have that cumulative impact in a, a community in a watershed. Water use is another thing that's connected to energy in our region, and um, people can reduce the amount of electricity, which might reduce some of the hydropower needs uh, in the region that can have some negative impacts on salmon. And then um, if people do want to see these whales and see the amazing behaviors they do, there's different options to watch from shore. We have a program called the Whale Trail that people can learn about uh, where to see whales from shore. We also work very closely with the, with the whale watch industry, with the Pacific Whale Watch Association, to ensure that um, they're responsibly boating, following rules and regulations, and providing really great educational and stewardship messages to their passengers. And we have a program called Be Whale Wise. So if you're going out in your boat or uh, want to do uh, whale watching, make sure you check out BeWhaleWise.org and, and follow all those um, guidelines and, and regulations. And, and getting engaged. Uh, people listening to this are raising their awareness about the whales and the threats and how what they do um, in their lives, um, how, how to support that recovery program we have, just for the ecosystem, for the salmon, for the whales. Um, if people want to get their hands dirty, uh, we work with partners like Whale Scout, who's linking um, volunteers uh, who are interested in supporting killer whale recovery to habitat restoration programs for salmon in their uh, in local watersheds. So that's really a chance to do some hands-on habitat work that benefits the streams that the salmon live in and in the end benefits the prey available to the whales. So lots of different options. All right, great. Well, Lynn, I, I just want to thank you for uh, coming on and talking about this today. It's It's definitely a story that uh, I think is going to continue to get attention. Uh, at least I hope it does. And um, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll be watching the news for your name again, and uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, some better news. So. Yeah, I'm hoping we'll hear some more positive news about new calves being born, um, the continued efforts through the governor's task force to get some some new protections and actions in place, and then uh, with our with our federal program and all the partners we work with. We're, we're 
trying to help support the whales. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. All right. right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. That wraps up another episode of the Knockabout Travel Podcast. For more information on the Southern Resident Killer Whales, visit the show notes page on your podcast player or visit the website at www.knockabout.blog forward slash podcast. Once again, thanks for listening and uh, hope to catch up with you soon. Cheers.